Uh, wait, what's happening? Uh, you're saying your names. Oh, we started. Okay. I mean, Avery. where we don't start till you say your name. Avery. Avery. <laughs> it's not poop until it comes out of a butt. Here's a quick thought experiment. You know how before there no. was before there was indoor plumbing, wizards just magic it away. <laughs> yep. Uh, <laughs> what if you magic it away? The moment it's coming out, is it poop that you're magicking away, or is it digested food that you're magicking away? Does it count as poop? What if what if you magic it away while it's still in your intestines? Well, it's poop because of the shape, but it's not excrement because it hasn't been exfiltrated from your body. The shape is what makes it poop? The form of poop? This is like a magma lava thing. Yeah, poop is very much the, the, the lava of the human body. Just as you would not want to touch the floor if it were covered in lava, you also would not want to touch the floor <laughs> if it were covered in poop. I never played the floor is poop as a kid. I don't know why. <laughs> Avery. And my name is Stevie, spelled with a dollar sign and a Bitcoin logo. And I'm Jim, and this is Topic Lords, the only place on the internet you can hear topics discussed. As we record, it is at 212 beats. Avery, would you like to introduce yourself or do you have anything to plug? My name is Avery. I make music. I have an album. It is on Bandcamp. Someday when Spotify... Is it on Spotify? Is it? it, it no. Someday, when Spotify stops rejecting it because of the cover artwork. <laughs> no, it's not Spotify. It's <laughs> CD Baby. That's true. When CD Baby stops rejecting the content it. content distribution baby. <laughs> yeah. I hear that you had a content distribution baby. Congratulations. Oh, yeah, we've we're got very all proud. We're very proud. Soon it will be a content distribution man. <laughs> Before you know it. They grow up so fast. Uh, well, we can have our I'm listeners done. write in to CD Baby and tell them to accept your album. But we won't tell them which album it is, so they'll just be like, what, what, do, you, what do we do about all these angry people? They're just going to have to stop rejecting anything. Open the floodgates. Yeah. You're going to start to see all kinds of crazy crap on Spotify after that. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is – well, you, you know how this is a problem where like – Someone has their their YouTube video, there's a copyright strike on it or something, and they can't get anywhere by going through the usual channels of like co contacting support. But then if they have like a friend at Google, or if they amass a, <laughs> an angry inter internet following, and the internet following gets angry at Google, then suddenly the problem is instantly solved. If we just did that, except we didn't tell them what they were angry about, then they would have to fix every problem, fix the problem for everybody. Yes, that is how it works, at a, especially at a tech company. Someone just hasn't submitted the fix bugs email. Right. So, that's why they haven't fixed all the bugs yet. And Stevie, would you like to introduce yourself or do you have anything to plug? Yeah, my name is Stevie and I was just kidding about the thing I said a few minutes ago. My name oh, thank is God. Spelled normally, yeah. Where would the Bitcoin logo even fit? It's silent and invisible. Okay. You could put it between any two letters, just not on the ends. I'm going to put it on the ends and not tell you. I will never know. So, um... Uh, how about we start on some topics? All right. All right. Yeah. Okay. We've got those. Uh, Avery, your topic is collectible Cheetos on eBay. Very good. So, I'm going to go on eBay right now. eBay. And just type Cheeto shapes. I had this pulled up the other day. So I've uncovered uh, the fact that there are Cheetos for sale for different uh, price levels on eBay. That are There's one shaped like Jesus. There is one shaped like a bird. Huge, three-inch flaming hot Cheeto shaped like a penis, $4,200. Cheeto shaped like a cute... Human baby embryo, $99. <laughs> That's a huge price discrepancy. Now I see how people value these things. Uh, here's collectible original crunchy Cheeto shaped like an ocean lobster claw hand, $50. L less than half the value of the penis. Of the penis Cheeto, which I, I would yeah. assume is a, is a more... Um, most anything that is cylindrical can really 
be shaped like a penis. Uh, yeah. I can picture who might be selling these, but I can't picture who might be buying them. Well, here's the trick about e- eBay is that you don't need any buyers for the auction to show up. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I, I was looking too far into the future. Some of this seems more serious. The, like, like the the lower the lower down they are, the more I, I assume that they're seriously trying to sell. For instance, here is a Cheeto shaped like a revolver, and then in all caps, super rare. And it is $5, and there's a picture of a revolver next to the Cheeto, just in case. <laughs> yeah, in case you need to remind yourself what a revolver, like it just spins? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> shaped like that, the Beatles album, Revolver? <laughs> yeah. Named so because it spins? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unlike all those other records. Right. And many of these have in all caps the words rare and ultra rare. And I'm I'm happy to note there was one shaped like a cockatiel, um, which is a kind of parrot, and that seems that's gone. So either it has sold, <laughs> and I've been checking on these Cheetos now for months, and that's been up there for months. So either it sold, or the person uh, got discouraged and and ate it, or or put it away. <laughs> oh my god! They just ate their prized cockatiel. <laughs> they put it back with their collection. Avery, there's a. There's a name for people like you in the Cheeto selling community. It's Lurker. They're always browsing, <laughs> never buying. <laughs> Ultra rare Cheeto shaped like dog's head. $12. Cheeto shaped like Gandhi. And it actually is kind of shaped like Gandhi. Or is it or is it just tricking you into thinking that because they have a picture of Gandhi right next to it? Now you're second guessing your senses. Well, it's Gandhi um, and he's sitting on his knees and he's sort of hunched over and writing on a tablet yeah and uh the cheeto is very much shaped like a shaved headed man sitting on his knees and writing on a tablet so when i first discovered this i thought that i had uncovered a real subculture and uh one of my more favorite things is subcultures that you never would have guessed existed that have like their own lingo and like their own celebrities and stuff um this is partially because i was a barista for 15 years right and barista culture is very much like that like if you've never much like cheeto culture it's a cutthroat world uh but you know there's like lingo and there are celebrities and there are magazines and stuff not that i thought that there might be cheeto magazines but i was just like oh there's a whole culture of people collecting Cheetos. But then as I came across these more expensive Cheetos, I thought, okay, there's a whole culture of people putting up Cheetos on eBay as a joke. Yeah, that seems most likely. I wonder if, uh, well, first of all, I wonder if anyone has ever sold any of them. Um, and if so, I wonder how much has the person with the, the, the highest Cheeto sales actually made and if they know that they are the number one Cheeto seller in the world. Yeah, there needs to be like a heritage auctions for Cheetos that keeps track of this data. <laughs> so, is there a way to search eBay for like things that have sold successfully, like auctions that ended with a sale? That is a great question. We got to go to cheetocharts.org. Birds sitting on a nest-shaped Cheeto. That's ambiguous. It sounds like it could be a, a bird sitting on a Cheeto that's shaped like a nest. Or a cheetah that's shaped like a bird sitting in a nest. Yeah, and looking at the photo, it's really not either of them. <laughs> there are a lot of these that are a big stretch, which is what made the Gandhi one stand out to me. Right, yeah. Oh, I just found the penis one. It's it's on the front page. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's the penis one. I think there might be many penis ones. But yeah, it's thousands of dollars. Here's, here's a rare, a rare original crunchy Cheeto shaped like a giraffe eating a leaf for 500 bucks. <laughs> I, I I really got excited. Like I pictured people with display cases in their homes yeah. that just are full of Cheetos. And now I wonder, now, now I want, now I would like to collect Cheetos. Like I would like to have a display case full of extremely rare Cheetos. And the other thing is like this thing about calling stuff rare. Like I, I see rare footage on youtube all the time and my first thought is well it can't be that rare anymore it's on it's on youtube 
I think it's par for the course with eBay. I mean, I feel like you've got to say it's some kind of extreme. Oh my God, there's an Among Us character shaped Cheeto. That doesn't look real at all. <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm more amused by the ones that actually look like what they're supposed to be or this one that says ultra rare Cheeto dog. And there's a picture of a dog and then there's a picture of a Cheeto that I can't even begin to imagine where somebody sees a dog shape in this. <laughs> All right, so I found an article by Loud News Net called Rare Cheetos, The Weird World of Rare Cheeto Collecting. And it's basically just an article that's doing what we're doing, which is like, Haha, here's a bunch of auctions of Cheetos that are look like funny things. Uh, but then it also says like, here's one of Cheeto that looks like Harambe that sold for $40,000. <laughs> Uh, but then was relisted for $40,000 again um, because like eBay doesn't have any sort of verification that the buyer is serious. So like, Oh, so, so you could, oh. so you could say, yeah, I'm buying that. And then just not, I think it would tank your reputation by one point, <laughs> but yeah, according to this, there was a, a a cheeto that looks like a dick that sold for a dollar forty plus three ninety shipping. Did it get caught up in uh, escrow? <laughs> it does not say. We should see if we can follow up on the user that bought it. I think I might buy this ninety nine cent Gandhi Cheeto. Absolutely, that's a good deal. Yeah, I'm going to place an order for this Gandhi Cheeto. Hang on one second. All right, if you need some uh, typing sound effects, I can help you out. Yeah, please. Two. Oh, no, $2. I almost entered $200. Place bid. Backspace keyboard. Confirm. Holy crap, you've been outbid by someone. Yeah, someone wants the someone wants Gandhi well, slightly more than you do. Yeah. All right, I'm going to go up to $3 and just to see if you've been outbid by someone. Who? All right. I'm not getting sex. I'm not going to spend more than $3 on a Cheeto, on a single <laughs> Cheeto. But think of it this way, though. You just made someone else spend $3. <laughs> <laughs> Avery, you did a good job. The, somebody, the, the eBay machine is meant to, uh, after, after two or three bids, is, is, uh, your ego is at stake. And so, you know, most people wouldn't be able to let go. You escaped. That's good. Yeah, I've seen this happen with my, my uncle is like addicted to eBay. I've seen him spend thousands of dollars on collectible, on like tokens from the public transport from public transportation lines in San Francisco's past. I was about to say now it keeps suggesting all this uh, explicit sexual content to me, and I can't figure out why. But I think it's because I clicked on a Cheeto shaped like a penis. Yeah, that was getting. I was getting similar stuff. Yeah, it's like why is here's a poster of two ladies canoodling yep yeah and i got one that's a sex pattern silicon mold candle <laughs> seahorse cheeto hundred dollars flat cheeto fifty dollars see this Ooh. is a different kind of thing it's a cheeto this that is... i stepped on <laughs> <laughs> this is like the upside down airplane stamp like this is a miss a miss created cheeto that could be worth something on the on the collector's market somebody out there has got a some wealthy enthusiast has got a whole hallway where they show off every cheeto is shaped like a penis that's the thing like there's a lot of penis cheetos in the world so you're telling me that in every cheeto you see a penis please go on tell me more everything i think i see becomes a tootsie roll to me and then that tootsie roll becomes a penis (laughs) (laughs) i'm i'm david duchovny Welcome to the Red Shoe Diaries. <laughs> uh, here is a $20,000 flaming hot Cheeto shaped like Arnold Schwarzenegger. One of a kind exclamation point. Like just the and bust it, or like the whole body? Uh, the whole body. It's like Arnold Schwarzenegger if he were a seal. If, if like both of his back legs were joined into one large leg. It has one wa- It's one watcher in the last 24 hours. Ultra rare Cheeto shaped like Batman crying. <laughs> are, we, are we ready for another topic? Yeah. I, I'm going to have a hard time letting this one go, but yeah. Stevie, your topic is Japanese websites are stuck in the 90s. Any theories? Oh, yeah, yeah. 
looking at that uh looking at that topic uh realized that it might hopefully it doesn't sound too insensitive uh, essentially what i mean is I, I i remember seeing japanese websites a long time ago i guess i don't know i was not really early on the web so like early 2000s or something like that and the prevalent style seems to have not really changed nearly as much as western web trends I'm trying to figure out why that is is it something about the information density is it a visual organization thing and yeah i don't know if either of you have been to any uh japanese websites uh and from what i hear this might also be true of other of um chinese websites as, as well so i'm not sure if it is just uh I yeah uh, I don't what know what could be causing what could be what could be causing the 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 complete different paradigm of pairing up Japanese and Chinese it makes me wonder whether it's um if ideogram based languages are harder to do web 2.0 stuff with like it might be it might honestly be a technical issue but I actually I doubt it I think it's probably cultural I, I think it's just that they use different websites than we do and they have different website preferences than we do. To the best of my knowledge, I think that's right too. I, I, I guess I spent like you know thirty seconds looking this up before we got on the call just to see if there were any obvious answers out there. And, and from people who have claimed to have uh, you know worked on websites for Chinese and Japanese companies, saying that white space feels uh, like like a kind of a, a waste of space. Well, it's it's more than that though with the Japanese websites, right? Because Stevie, you and I were we fell down some kind of rabbit hole and I was just following, like I can't read Japanese and I was just following links on this Japanese website because I was mesmerized by just that it's, it seemed very much like it seemed like web 2.0 never happened and they just kept iterating on web 1.0. I think like a common, um, a common like motif I see is, is these small rectangles with images and links to other sites, kind of like they're still web rings or something. Yeah. 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 I I don't know. I'm I'm kind of into it. I like I, I miss the the era when websites were HTML rather than little just full on applications that run in your browser and are written in JavaScript. Yeah. I also miss that. Speaking as a person whose job now is to program a web application mostly written in JavaScript. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. This there's definitely a zeitgeist right now of pushing back against that. I've I've run across some projects that are trying to create, uh, you know, heavily text-based standards and issuing scripting and styling and stuff like that. Or yeah. there's one called Gemini, which is supposed to be very much like that. No images or anything like that. I find it very comforting, like emotionally comforting, like back before the internet seemed to have the power to reach into the real world and fuck everything up. Yeah. <laughs> like back when I had a, I had a website that was a, a fake religion and we had the Bible and a bunch of other stuff in our fake religion and people all over the world emailed us and it didn't seem threatening or bad at all. <laughs> <laughs> now, now that would be alarming. <laughs> Very alarming. I, I found recently a search engine that was a search engine, op engine optimized to return like pages that were mostly text, mostly static text. Oh, interesting. And searching for things in that search engine actually, I'm trying to remember the name of it. I'll, I'll definitely find it and put it in the show notes. Um, but searching for things in that really did make me think of like, oh yeah, this is a lot like what searching the web was like in the 90s, both in terms of the results you got and also you usually didn't find what you were looking for. <laughs> yeah. I think more of directories than search engines when I think about the earlier days of, of looking for things. Right. Yeah. Although I don't know if that was ever as helpful or super helpful either. But When I think of early search, I think of people like loading the bottom of their web pages with keyword text. I'm sure there's a term for that, but you know, like <laughs> SEO. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You like sc scroll down the page and it turns out that the page is like way longer than you thought. And then at the bottom is a bunch of links that are just text meant for, to catch web crawlers algorithm or whatever. Yeah. Remember web crawler? 
<laughs> AKA Spider, I think, was another name for it. <laughs> yeah. Webcrawler.com. It still exists, which means somebody works for Webcrawler. Somebody still works for SGs, I think. <laughs> the search engine that looked like a butler. Somebody's got to keep updating that logo so that every five years it alternates between having gradients and being flat. Right. <laughs> I didn't realize that was even a search engine. I thought that was, I thought you asked Jeeves things and he told you the answers. It's more of an oracle, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a modern, it is a, it is a modern day Delphi. <laughs> Using web crawler returns, uh, I mean, it returns modern websites, but it still looks like the way that it used to format results in the 90s. Also, I searched for Flaming Hot Cheetos because that was still on my mind. <laughs> Webcrawler, powered by Ask Jeeves, powered by DuckDuckGo, powered by Bing, powered by Yahoo. It's turtles all the way down. It's Jeeves is all the way down. It's a butler standing Butler's. on <laughs> the silver plate of a butler presenting you with a silver plate with a butler on it. It's one of those cheerleader pyramids but with butlers. <laughs> sexy butlers alright I just posted that search engine it's search.marginalia.nu marginalia I love it I don't know what it does but I love it I think that's like a competitor to, I can't believe it's not butter <laughs> Mar I think you're thinking of margarine aliena no no Mar no 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 no. I'm definitely thinking of whatever the thing you just said was <laughs> now I'm searching in marginalia for flaming hot cheetos me too <laughs> Ooh, stylized as chi dash toes until 1998. What? Oh, yeah. Gross. Chi toes. I think I've oh, been man. spelling Cheetos incorrectly. <laughs> oh, you spelled them like, your t like the things on the end of your feet? <laughs> yes. What is this? What is this result? Where is this from? Oh, Encyclopedia Marginalia. I think. So this is something that I didn't realize was happening last time and maybe is new. I think this is scraping content from Wikipedia. Oh. And just putting it in a nice little center column. Yeah, like a much more like friendly, re reader-friendly kind of a... Reader-friendly if you like books. Right. Yeah. Yeah. If you want to think of it as like a, an ex the experience of reading a book. I, I bet this appeals to people of a of a certain generation and above no results for freezing cold cheetos <laughs> <laughs> on ebay now my suggestions are cheetos shaped like things like sexually explicit content belt buckles from something i was looking for earlier and then um a three by five card with a picture of kim jong-un on it that says live laugh and love <laughs> kim jong-un <laughs> oh he said that I didn't know he originated that phrase. Yeah, I think that's his phrase. Yep. Yeah. That, yeah. I believe so. He looks really happy in this and he's standing in front of a submarine. <laughs> are we ready for another topic? Now that all of the listeners are going to be, you know, swimming in nostalgia. That's right. Or whatever. <laughs> the warm blanket of the 1990s internet. It's time to go even farther back in time. So my topic is medieval European and ancient Egyptian philosophy, which I just picked because I wanted to hear Avery talk about it because <laughs> like li listeners may remember like the very end of an episode, maybe a couple of months ago, where Avery teased me with this fascinating <laughs> um, tidbit about uh, – well, anyway, take it away, Avery. Okay. Uh, and my, my disclaimer is um, I'm a philosophy person. Uh, I try not to bring up this kind of stuff on the... Right, right. No, your point being that this is my fault if it turns out to be a bad segment. <laughs> yeah. Also, other disclaimer, medieval philosophy is not my specialty. My specialty was philosophy of logic, philosophy of mathematics, and philosophy of language. So, the thing that I think got Jim going is that like for most periods in history, like I read a lot of history and, and for a lot of periods in history, almost every period, I feel like, um, there is something that I can grab onto where, where, whereby I can think, okay, ancient China, very different from my life now, but the people there were just same human beings as everybody else. I can imagine myself in that situation. Or sometimes I'll read like a philosopher, like, like a Roman philosopher 
for instance, talking about how at the end of the day, he likes to come home and sit by his fire with his dog. And I can be like, okay, well, Rome, there's a lot of crazy shit that happened in Rome. People were really violent. There's a lot of weird stuff. But at the end of the day, I can still imagine myself as a Roman citizen. I could probably have a conversation with somebody like that. With the exception of two cultures in history where it's just like these people are aliens. Um, And one is medieval Europe, Dark Ages Europe particularly. Uh, And the other is pretty much all of Egypt, at least any, any of the kingdoms of Egypt. There were, there were periods throughout Egypt's history where it was not a kingdom. So between the early and middle kingdoms comes a, a period where there wasn't pharaohs anymore. There were like a bunch of little kings and um, it is stuff that was produced during those periods is, is much more relatable and not as just bizarrely alien as stuff during the kingdom periods. Same with the late kingdom. There was another period in Egypt between the middle and late kingdom periods where there weren't pharaohs. So really just any kind of pharaoh culture is really bizarre. Um, mm-hmm. And then medieval Europe, like a lot of my window into the, into the thinking of people at that time is through philosophy, but also through reading about history. Uh, I can just give examples of weird, weird crap that people were up to. Yeah. So, so let's, let's hear it. Let's hear the good stuff. Have you ever read uh, Canticle for Leibowitz? No, I have not. It's a classic in science fiction, but to me, it feels like it captures what living during the period where people were just emerging from the Dark Ages must have been like. It, it takes place after there's been a nuclear apocalypse, and it's I think it I think it's supposed to be in New Mexico somewhere, but uh, essentially the world has reverted to um, medieval medieval Catholicism. Two thirds of the book are about a um, group of monks who live in probably in New Mexico. And they are trying to get their patron saint, who's a guy by the name of Leibowitz, uh, canonized by the Pope. And the joke is that obviously Leibowitz is Jewish, but they don't, they don't know that. And one of the monks finds, accidentally stumbles into Leibowitz's bomb shelter. So the so the monks have built their monastery on Leibowitz's old house, and it turns out that Leibowitz had something to do with constructing bombs. And this monk finds schematic diagrams, a plan of some kind, possibly for a bomb, but he doesn't know what he has. But he knows that it belonged to Leibowitz, and so he knows that it's valuable, but he doesn't understand it at all. And he spends the rest of his life making an illuminated manuscript of it. Right. Um, (laughs) And then he takes it to the, he tries to go take it to the Pope um, and hilarity ensues. But does the Pope understand what it is? He never makes it to the Pope. He gets killed along the way. But then the story jumps forward a few hundred years and there is, there's a man who's starting to rediscover science and he understands what it is. So he comes back to the, he comes back to the monastery uh, and begins to decipher this illuminated manuscript and like it's an illuminated manuscript. So it's like all colorful and it has, you know, dragons in the corners of it and stuff. Right. Um, the first letter is 20 times the size of all the other letters. Y- yes. Yeah. It has, it has giant. Yeah. The first giant letter on it. And this is the way that knowledge was, was preserved in medieval Europe is that like it was preserved through the church and through a lot of monks uh, and monasteries, logic was preserved, and some form of Aristotelian philosophy was preserved. But a lot of the people that were copying this stuff down didn't really know what they had. They just had a dim understanding that it was important and they should preserve it. Right. There's a, a, a great historian who once said, like, you know that your culture is in trouble when you can name all of the smartest people. <laughs> When there's like five people and those were the five smartest people and everybody knows who they are. Um, so like the learned bead and they all had crazy names like that. Later into the medieval period, Erasmus and uh, basically like four or five literate guys who could, who could read and who, could, and who produced original work. And through them, we get a very strange view of what knowledge is and just like... If you think about the life of a peasant during that time too, like you wouldn't have known people forgot 
writing. They forgot history. So you would not have known, say, how long your family has been in a particular area. For all you know, the world has always been like this. The roads and stuff that you have, those were all built by Romans. And most people have forgotten who the Romans were. All of the areas that were kingdoms were all the manners of rich, noble Romans. Some of them even had internal plumbing and running water and stuff, and all that fell apart. So your your average person wouldn't have any idea where any of this stuff came from, like any of the infrastructure that they used came from, and like life expectancy shrunk. So people died very early. So it was it was uh, young teenagers were placed into the positions of adults. So it was it wasn't uncommon for people in public to have like emotional breakdowns or break out into fights and stuff because they were all teenagers. <laughs> and there were waves of plague that swept through. So there were also not very many people. And it was a strange thing because it also eventually waves of plague sleeping, sweeping through brought prosperity and freed people from, uh, from serfdom because there just weren't enough jobs to go around. So, so peasants got to move up the ladder into <laughs> positions, positions that had been left behind by people being killed by the plague. Oh, like after World War II. Yeah, totally. Like the housing boom, boom that followed World War II. But for a while, it was just people died. There weren't a lot of people. Like the church had lost its grand- grandiosity. The Roman church had split in two and the Western half had completely collapsed and was broke. And the only centers of learning were these small monasteries around and the kinds of philosophical things that people were interested at the time are things that I cannot like, uh, 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 people were interested in this problem of intelligible forms, for instance, and an intelligible form, as far as I understand it is what you can know about an object. And this is, this comes from Plato and Aristotle, but the idea is something like, when you when you sit and concentrate on an object for long enough, your mind forms a representation of the object, and the thing the then the representation of the object is the is something like the form of the object, the shape, the the external structure of the object, and all of the properties that are accidents of the object, like color. Is that the same as the res extensa? Uh, that's where the idea comes from. That's really good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that that eventually turns into res extensa. That's actually Descartes' answer to this. This that's right. Descartes like putting putting this problem away. So this this becomes codified in a form of philosophy called scholasticism. And most historians of philosophy will say that Descartes is the end of scholasticism, and importantly so because scholasticism inherited a lot of. Uh, I really like. Aristotle. Um, I'm a fan of Aristotle's philosophy. But in sort of the late medieval period, when Aristotle became the source of all truth that wasn't derived from the Bible, it held back especially science for a really long time because Aristotelian ideas about science um, just aren't correct, basically. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and so it, it prevented it prevented things from moving forward for a long time until Descartes essentially broke the, the spell of scholasticism over the Western world. Uh, but that would be also the beginning of enlightenment and the end at the end of this this period I'm thinking about. I don't know. And is any of this um titillating to you? This is all super interesting, yeah. Um not as alien as I was hoping though. <laughs> oh, okay. Well you you want to go really real alien. I was, uh, Avery, I was just trying to find, I was just searching the internet to see if there were any Flaming Hot Cheetos shaped like the Learned Bead. <laughs> Learned Bead is a little too ultra rare, though. <laughs> so, so the real alien thing, I guess, then is ancient Egypt. And ancient Egypt is very, first of all, the, the um, time periods involved in, in Egypt are, are mind-blowing, right? Like, I think that we are... We right now are closer to Cleopatra in time than Cleopatra was to the first pharaoh of the first dynasty. And then Cleopatra was to the Triceratops. <laughs> <laughs> oh, when the first dynasty of Egypt was... Uh, first dinosaur of Egypt. 
they call it the first, our first dinosaur president was called the first dinosaur. <laughs> <laughs> when the first dynasty of Egypt was formed, there were still woolly mammoths. Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, and in, that in was Egypt or. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, they all because what really helps you out there in the desert is just a huge coat of fur. <laughs> yeah. That's so that's how they had to invent the straight razor in order to shave the mammoths <laughs> so they could be comfortable in the desert. That's where the term mummified comes from is woolly mammoth. Woolly, mum, woolly, woolly, woolly mummies. It's actually uh, mammified. Actually, and in, in, in Egypt, uh, uh, body hair was considered really gross. And so people would shave each other with, they, they invented, a, they basically invented the razor Yeah, because of that. But you use it to like shave all your body hair off. So that's relatable. I mean, I can get down <laughs> with that. Yeah. I, I don't mind body hair on other people, but I really don't like it on myself, which is unfortunate because I'm <laughs> the, the only time I've ever gone in for surgery, the surgeon said, I'm going to shave you because you're a hairy beast. <laughs> <laughs> That's a weird choice of words. Like, oh, you're a hairy beast. Like, what tone of voice was it? Uh, it was, Mr. Burke, you're a hairy beast. I'm going to have to shave you. <laughs> Rude. Like, Whoa, okay, sure. And then uh, he wasn't kidding. Like, they shaved areas of my body that were nowhere near where I had surgery. <laughs> <laughs> that's very just they were exposed to the elements so we're like we got to get rid of this hair before we can <laughs> they work. were like oh now it looks bad now it looks asymmetric <laughs> and I, I, like i would have liked to be awake to just know like is there a special shaver in the room or or if, i guess if you're a surgeon you're also qualified to shave someone yeah the barber used to also be the surgeon that's right yeah it's I'm just trying to imagine that there's somewhere in the in the Hippocratic Oath about uh about keeping each other hairless, about about giving a good shave. First, do no hair. <laughs> there we go. That's, that's the one. <laughs> right. So Egypt was a death obsessed culture. Um, it was constantly on everybody's minds. Just the, the the time scales alone make it hard for me to imagine how you would conceive of yourself as an Egyptian. And most Egyptians thought that their kingdom had gone back to the creation of the universe and that the pharaohs were gods. A few pharaohs married their own siblings and that wasn't frowned upon because they were gods. And people have nine parts to their soul, which is where I immediately start being like, well, I can't, I don't, I don't, I can't even begin to make sense of this. Yeah. Like, you have nine parts of their souls. One part of your soul, the Ba, survives after death, but it survives as a red-billed heron. And it seems like the Egyptian afterlife, right? Like we've all read the we've all read the, the Egyptian Book of the Dead, right? <laughs> when you die, you go underground, a guy with a crocodile head weighs your heart against a feather, and if the feather outbalances your heart, then you you're destroyed, I believe. You cease to exist. And if your heart balances with the feather, then you, my interpretation is you get to go underground and sit in a long line with all of your male predecessors for the rest of eternity. And that's the good outcome. Yeah, that's the good outcome. That's a strange thing, right? Like, that's hard for me to, it's, it's also one of, it's also one of, like, there are a bunch of Bronze Age cultures where it didn't seem like there was an idea that the afterlife was going to be very good. Ancient Greek culture, which is something that I find myself able to relate to, still like like in the in the Odyssey, Odysseus goes to the underworld to find Achilles, and even though Achilles has died in glorious battle and is like super famous and stuff, in the underworld, the underworld still sucks for him. Like it sucks for everybody. Like they go to the underworld, and it's just a bunch of people who are sort of half who they used to be and are all kind of wandering around and like that was what they thought that was what they thought they had to look forward to for eternity yeah and it's not like yeah it's not like you're coming up with uh you know if you're going to guess what the afterlife is like you would think that people might come up with a comforting image but yeah if you're going to make something up that's a good uh, that yeah. might have been like that might have been christianity's true innovation providing uh an actually desirable afterlife yeah, that huh. uh, as as a as a person raised with Judaism, um, Jews do not think or talk very much about what the afterlife is like. Like, there's not they don't think a lot of they don't 
spend a lot of time on it. Whereas Christianity is really like, yeah, you work, you slave, but then you, you then, then you're good forever. Well, and then, yeah, it, it depends on, uh, depends on the sect of Christianity. I have a different take on that, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. Right. Right. Well, and, and also, uh, there are different, you know, there's differing, differing criteria for how you get to the good afterlife. Right. And in some forms of Christianity, it seems like it might be impossible for most people to get there. Is Christianity the, the, the religion that um, introduced that outlook on the afterlife? I think actually that Zoro, Zoroastrianism is the uh, religion that we know of that introduced that, that kind of outlook. Mm. Where you go to a reward after you... I mean, right. there are plenty of religions where you go to a reward after you die, but there aren't... Before Zoroastrianism, there aren't really any religions that pin that to your... To whether or not you're ethical. Gotcha. Right? Like, you know, you think about like Valhalla, like Vikings have a cool place you go to if you die in battle. And in, in a lot of cases, like being a good person has something to do with that, but it's not the reason... And then, like I said, there are, there are plenty of Bronze Age, like the Mycenaeans and stuff like that. There are plenty of Bronze Age cultures where it doesn't seem like there's anything you could do to avoid a pretty not great eternity. Like, uh, like even like Sumerian culture, right? There's this amazing passage in Gilgamesh where I think it's Enkidu goes to the underworld. Like, he's going to die the next day and he tells. Gilgamesh that he has had a dream about the queen of the underworld and that he has gone to the house where all the great kings go when they die and for eternity they eat clay and it's this like really gripping thing about how he calls it the house of dust and I think he says they eat clay and like forget they like they they don't have anything to drink or something like that it's it's this amazing thing and he's just like Yep, this is where all kings go when they die. It sounds like they just had a dream and decided that was fact. That was that that was canon. Yeah. But yes, I still find all of these more relatable than ancient Egyptian culture because of this ancient Egyptian culture is awesome, but also fucking strange. Like this whole nine parts of the soul, the ba and the ka and like and the 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 you, you weigh your herd against a feather and just that death was prominent right like imagine the period after the pyramids these are monuments to to death and the afterlife and they are you know they're big enough to see from space like if you were born in egypt you would see them everywhere every day this reminder of of death this reminder of eventually if you you know do whatever it is that mean that 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 weighs your heart against the feather of truth then you get to spend forever underground sitting in a chair (laughs) (laughs) and and this concept of this concept of this of of this endless history and just this endless stretch of time i mean rome lasted for a long time too but egypt lasted forever and it's just like it's it's hard to for me to imagine well i mean it's uh, similar to the situation like from the perspective of like a peasant it's similar to the situation in what you were talking about in medieval Europe, where as far as you knew, this, is, this has gone on, ha, has gone on forever and will continue going on forever, except in the case of the Egyptians, is actually true. Yeah, totally. Yeah, 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 yeah. Whereas <laughs> the weird thing about the, yeah, that's a great point. The weird thing about the medieval or the Dark Ages peasant is that like, this has only been like a hundred years at like a few generations at most. And that that to me is creepy. The fact that like in a, in a few generations you could just lose everything, yeah. And people could be like, yeah, I guess it's always been this way, right? Like, there's always been weird walls everywhere with, that we don't know how they got here. Yeah, that is scary. But also because just this idea of not knowing how things got there. I mean, that's a common thing with every with every culture. But like the the strange timelessness in 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 the Egyptian view of the universe is like. And it, it's weird because I can like, I can relate to Chinese, a lot of stuff about Chinese culture and China is the oldest contiguous culture that we have. Like it's basically Han Chinese culture is basically the same thing for the last 4,000 years in the same place. But it feels like e- Egypt feels much different to me in terms of like this timelessness. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess we should move on to another topic though. It's been 
I don't want to let this one dominate the show, even though I do, do find it super interesting. Yeah. 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 Like, like I said, I'm not sure if it, <laughs> not sure if it's good. We got a few more juicy ones in here. Lord's material. Yeah, yeah. We'll find out together. This is a write-in. Brad asks, denatured alcohol, al- alcohol that is poison added to it to prevent people from drinking it. What other things do we slash could we inter- intentionally pollute to restrict their usage? All right. One time when the Nintendo Switch came out, I was opening up a bunch of games all at the same time because I was, you know, uh, obviously very excited. And I was like holding a bunch of packaging in my mouth while I was trying to get other stuff open very sloppily while sitting on the couch. And I put a cartridge for one of the games just a little bit between my lips as if I were holding a pencil, you know, in my mouth while doing something else with my hands. And it tasted extremely bitter. And it turns out that they add this coating to these cartridges that tastes horribly bitter to prevent wee little babies from eating and choking on cartridges. Right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Stevie, when you said you had a story about this and putting something in your mouth, I just pictured that it must have been when you were a child. I thought you were going to say it must have been a flaming hot Cheeto and I was going to make you nervous that it might have been a rare one, but no. (laughs) Every flaming hot Cheeto is rare. Yeah. I guess that doesn't count as a poison because it's not actually toxic. It's explicitly non-toxic. It's a similar idea. I was going to bring up how carbon monoxide doesn't smell like anything, but we add uh, a scent to it so you can yeah, so you can detect when it is filling your house. Yeah. Ah. Now that I'm – okay, I'm about to say something out loud that I realize is something I heard when I was a child and might be totally wrong. Uh-huh. <laughs> a better place to test it, this test this out. Here we go. <laughs> Live on the air. Uh, Let's hear it. <laughs> Live on the air. The fifth caller to call in and tell us something that could be denatured wins a free Topic Lords t-shirt. Call now. <laughs> uh, yeah, so is it or is it not the case that um, antifreeze is sweet? Uh, my understanding is that it is the case. Yeah, my only knowledge of that is uh, based on an episode of The Simpsons from the first season where Bart goes to France and they're putting antifreeze in the wine. So, I just assumed it tasted great. <laughs> in the wine. Okay, so I believe that there is a problem with like, if your car is leaking antifreeze, there's a problem with cats drinking the antifreeze and then dying because it's it's sweet. Well, that, that conflicts with something that I heard as a kid, which is that cats can't taste sweet. yeah well i heard that if a cat eats pop rocks (laughs) how would anybody know that cats can't taste sweet how would you test that maybe uh, maybe you would like just ask them flash flash cards oh teach them to use a little (laughs) a little machine that lets them talk where they can hit like a, a button for yes and a button for no right just blink once for yes twice for no can you taste sweet things? <laughs> you could probably measure their brain waves uh, or or just observe their behavior and see if it changes at all or their heart rate to see if it changes at all between a sweet thing and a neutral tasting thing. I bet it's I bet it's also possible to actually analyze the meat of the tongue. Yeah, tongue meat analysis is a great way to tell. Yeah, look at what those receptors react to. The philosopher in me is starting to get get uneasy, but I've already spent too much time in lecture mode. <laughs> oh, okay. I want to I want to hear where this is going. Oh God! Well, you know, um, there's a problem that pretty much occurs to everyone called the uh, philosophers call it the inverted qualia problem. But I always think of it as the dude, what if you're blue or my green problem? Right. Right. Where if your spectrum is inverted from somebody else's, there's no way of knowing. Right. So there are a bunch of different versions of this, but really what it all boils down to is like we're talking about qualitative experience, like the qualitative experience of tasting sweetness. Um, And there are a bunch of associated problems with trying to make a one-to-one reduction between a qualitative experience and the um, physiological correlates to that experience wait um, though I could, are, are we saying that like i thought it was can cats detect yeah i don't think any well i don't know about anybody but i certainly wasn't trying to argue that cats don't have the qualia of tasting of sweetness. sweetness that's 
Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 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 Yeah. Well, I don't know. Cross the line. Like you could totally, there's a completely coherent philosophical argument in a, in a philosophical position, as a matter of fact, called identity theory or a whole school of species of philosophy of mind that would say that, yeah, that's the right way to go. But there's just the, the person in me that always wants to lecture people about shit like this. It's like, <laughs> but so that like the, the, the reductio ad, ad absurdum or the, or the danger of it that I always come to is like, so there's a, uh, these group of neurotransmitters called C fibers that are um, directly correlated with pain. So human beings, when we experience pain, apparently this is accompanied by um, elevated firing of C fibers. Um, however, octopuses do not have C fibers. So if we wanted to make a one-to-one reduction right. to C fibers just are pain, then the implication there would be that octopuses do not feel pain. There's there's different ways out of this trap, or you could just bite the bullet and be like, yeah, no, totally, octopuses don't feel pain. Uh, but I think I think you see the problem. Octopuses, there. no, octopuses feel squelch, which is <laughs> what they have instead of pain. The- yeah, totally. Well, no, Avery, I see the problem because we're talking about sweetness that doesn't equal like sugar. You know, yeah, uh, thinking, yeah like things yeah. that we experiences sweet are based on certain physical things and can that be detected is a different question i guess we we're saying cats and sweetness it's hard to say because we can't ask a cat unlike what jim suggested or we could but it wouldn't get it wouldn't yield results if we asked the cat what so we would have to ask them do you taste sweet and they would say right. what's sweet and they would say it's well it's what you taste when you eat sugar and they say oh yeah of course i taste that yeah totally uh-huh. yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> This is a this is a this is a problem, right? Like it could be the case that animals have their own kinds of experiences, right? Like it could be the case that you ask the octopus, like, "Do you feel pain when I poke you?" The octopus <laughs> would say, "What's pain?" And you're like, "It's the thing that I feel when I poke myself." Yeah, <laughs> and they would be like, "Yeah, I feel that." But then, actually, what they're referring to is squelch, right? And what you're referring to yeah. is pain. Before we transition the topic from poison to sugar to qualia i was also thinking about how some crazy headed person hooked up cat eyeballs to a sensor and was able to detect where the blind spots in the vision are i was thinking oh you could just do out with a tongue too that's a totally different question and also probably that wouldn't work (laughs) (laughs) that's interesting though blind spots in cat's eyes. Did you know if you raise kittens uh, in an environment with a bunch of black and white stripes, they lose... <laughs> I'm sorry. They lose uh, uh, depth perception. <laughs> Wait. This is, this is like the, uh, the allegory of the cave. We're like, okay, but we're, we're like, you try to explain it to people and they're like, oh, what a horrible thing. Why would you do that to somebody? <laughs> You're like, like, no, oh, no, no. Yeah, it's such a useful experiment or whatever. <laughs> I mean, meow. Uh, you want to do one more topic? Right, hold on. I'm just enjoying this image of a cat suffering. Okay, I'm done. I'm ready. Stevie, your topic is the unusual puzzles of Star Tropics. Oh boy, a video game related topic. Have you ever played uh, the Nintendo, the NES game Star Tropics? There's a number of NES games that I conflate with each other. Is this like a Zelda-like? It's kind of a cute island-themed adventure game where you're yeah, on a okay. small archipelago trying to locate your like missing uncle who like, turns out has been abducted by aliens, but it has a very Zelda-like feel, yeah. Right. So, I, I think the um, the answer to that is that I played it for like 15 minutes at the maid and got to like the second screen. <laughs> well, it was one of my, uh, it was my, one of my favorite games as a kid. And I guess uh, Avery recently reminded me that um, occasionally I'll just talk about some of the things that were kind of unique about it. There's, there's two puzzles in it that come to mind that were kind of different from any other game that I played. One of them is the most interesting one. It's where you're, you get access to a submarine and there is a robot on board that, that helps you pilot the submarine. And the robot asks you for, this, for the access code to uh, initiate uh, launch. And the robot tells you that the access code is available in the manual or the letter that your uncle gives, has given you, but you have to dip it in water. The thing is that there is a 
some physical material that accompanies the game included with like the instruction manual. There's actually a yellow piece of paper folded in four. That's a letter from your uncle, uh, the, the uncle character of the game. And you have to take the letter and dip it into a, a bowl of water. And it uses a invisible ink that appears when it's wet. Uh, so, so to be clear, this is like in real life. This is, this is in real life. This is in IRL. As they say, I you have to do that. Love that. Yeah. I, I remember playing the game as a kid and like walking around the island and trying to mash buttons, trying to figure out how to like dip something in water along the seashore. And then I was like, wait a minute, they don't actually mean this. And I grabbed the letter and I dipped it in water and I I just about crapped myself uh, out of excitement and because the, the code appears. And so this was the only, um, I think that there's a lot of r- cool artsy games that blur the boundary between the real world and especially ARGs, but not even, I can't, I can't even really think of many video games that do that. Although Jim, I think that maybe you have a little more experience in this realm, but for, especially for an older commercial game, I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. It's a, it's a neat thing. And uh, the, the examples that come to mind are there's an X-Men game for the Genesis where at some point, like you're like at a mainframe in the game and it instructs you to push reset Yes, yes. Really? And yes. you have to push reset on the console. <laughs> but oh, probably so you're going to like wander around this room for half an hour figuring out what does it mean by push reset? Yeah. That's so funny. I, I had totally forgotten about that. Although I do remember that game, pretty hardcore. There's another yeah. um, another puzzle from Star Tropics that I thought was pretty unique. Not quite to the same extent, but um, had another sort of tie-in with real life in a different way, which is... One of my favorite levels is you are at the, a giant grave. Um, one of the islands is, is essentially a memorial um, site for a some, some sea captain who was from that island. There's like a cathedral type room where uh, you see like an altar, t- altar for him and uh, it uh, has a giant keyboard and a pipe organ. And you can step on the keys to play the notes. You can only step on the white keys because of the sort of like tile limitations or whatever. There's also a parrot that belonged to the captain. And you talk to the parrot and it's just squawking stuff at you. Of course, it's a clue. And I didn't understand it when I was a kid, but um, or at least not at first. And the parrot is squawking things that I thought he said, do me so far or do me so far. And it's do me so far. It's solfeggio. And he's giving you the musical key to unlock the room so if you step on the the keys that correspond to the uh to the selfish uh, like parts of the scale that he's reciting to you you unlock the thing and this was already really this was really weird for me because like i at that age i had already had something of a musical education but i had never encountered selfish before and so i i feel like i i must have asked my mom who was also like a musician at the time she's like oh yeah <laughs> somehow my mom was able to give me the answer to a, a video game puzzle as a child, it's a weird experience, but I really like how how much that game encroached on your physical on the physical world for you. Yeah, I I think that like these, I would argue that these puzzles are unfair, and they would be considered unfair nowadays. I would too, because that last one especially relies on a uh, relies on a particular kind of education that I think nobody that I knew directly of my peers had. Right, um, at least at my age, you know. Right, right. And I think it, you could just get away with a lot more bullshit back in the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> That's true for a lot of areas, not just <laughs> not just video game design. Yeah, you got to you got to buy the guide to get through this. You got to buy the book. Right. That is a thing that I don't think I, I would ever have occurred to me um because I have I have dyslexia and it was much more of a problem for me when I was a kid. So I would not have read or even opened the instruction manual. Yeah. I might not have even known there was extra stuff in the instruction manual. Yeah. 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 Nowadays you would find puzzles like those in ARGs where the, the thing about the ARG is that, you know, you have hundreds or thousands of people trying to solve these puzzles at once. Probably one of them is going to know solfege. Right. Crowdsourcing the answers. The experience of like suddenly realizing that it's the that it's the piece of paper and then going and dipping the piece of paper in physically dipping it in water and having it reveal something just sounds like such a special kind of experience that you don't 
usually get out of a video game. That was definitely the moment where Neo starts punching the bullets or whatever the fuck happens in that movie. <laughs> right. No, that stuff's <laughs> magical. Um, and that's part of the reason I, I spent, you know, I've spent my whole game development career trying to recreate moments like that. Uh, right. Is that it is it, magic, even though and even though the the costs of doing business that way are so high. Yeah. It it very much reminds me actually of Frog Fractions. Yeah. Same. And and Jim, I feel like that's a harder harder thing to achieve, uh, I guess, for a player these days because of the saturation of. Oh yeah. Of the world of games, I don't know. Um, there was an installation art exhibit at the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts. I think I was 19 or 20. And I went with my girlfriend at the time to see it. And I had just gotten a haircut, which plays a, plays a role in the story. One of the installation pieces was in a portable trailer, like you might put a classroom in or something like that. And you go into this portable trailer and inside it's made up like kind of a, a hip bachelor pad from like the seventies. Like there's shag carpeting and there was a, uh, there was a cool clock on the wall and there was a couch, kind of an orange couch and, a, an Andy Warhol poster and a fireplace. And there were two small mirrors on either side of the fireplace and the mirrors had all these little knickknacks on them. And they were like, they were like four by four mirrors that are, or sorry, two by two mirrors. They were very, very small mirrors. And, uh, we walked around for a bit in this thing and I sat down and was like, okay, I guess this is a neat period piece about the seventies or something. And I looked in one of the mirrors to check out my cool new haircut. And then as we were leaving, I reflectively checked my reflection in the other mirror and I have no reflection. And I walk towards the mirror in disbelief and I'm looking into it still trying to figure out how it is that I have no reflection. And suddenly it occurs to me what's going on. And I take my hand and I extend it towards the mirror. And my girlfriend looks over and goes, no way. And my hand goes through the mirror and it, it wasn't a mirror at all. It was a little two by two window cut into the exhibit that looked in on a complete mirror recreation of the little apartment thing. There was a backwards running clock. There was a backwards Andy Warhol poster. <laughs> Everything was a mirror image. And the feeling was profound because it was like, that's only there. Like, it feels like it's there just for you because I, I wouldn't have noticed. Like if I didn't, if I hadn't had a haircut, I probably wouldn't have looked in the mirror and wouldn't have noticed Yeah, because they were such small mirrors and it was only one mirror. Um, and in that kind of like magical sense of there's this whole world I didn't realize. And like this, if I hadn't looked, I wouldn't have seen this thing like that. That to me feels very much like that experience of star tropics. And also again, the thing that yeah. you're doing with frog fractions. I'm so impressed that you experienced that exhibit the way the artist intended exactly the opposite of how a speedrunner plays a video. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, if I had speed run through that art exhibit, <laughs> I, I wouldn't have seen. If I was trying to break the the world record for uh, for the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts speed run, you would go I, in and immediately jump through that. the second room and then leave again. Yeah, well, there's a glitch on the way in where if you like <laughs> jump to the side while they're taking your ticket, you get into the walls. Yo, you could you could literally clip. You could actually clip through the wall in that art exhibit. That's cool. Yeah, you could glitch through that mirror. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and then just hide and freak people out. Ooh, <laughs> I, I I watched people go in and out after that, and I, I I don't think very many people actually saw that. And the other thing is like the amount of work that takes to do, knowing that some people are going to miss it is is really interesting. Well, yeah, unless that's why you need to fix this problem by you like go and lurk behind the mirror so people notice it. <laughs> <laughs> just stand in a mirror and then be like you're freaked out huh it's not a mirror crazy right <laughs> exactly just completely ruin that experience for people <laughs> that's exactly one of the kind that's exactly the kind of um exhibit i wanted to set up a long long time ago someone that a friend a mutual friend of mine and neighbors that that was in our band um 
and I had a, an idea many years ago to set up kind of like a miniature, a miniature room that was it looked like somebody lived in it, but it's very small, like a tiny little kitchen, a tiny little place where they sleep. But I wanted to hide secrets and Easter eggs and puzzles in there that most people wouldn't find. But if they, you know, twisted the pepper in the spice rack, or if they like, you know, played the right melody on the keyboard, oh, I wonder where I got that idea. You know, something would unlock or change. You know, it's a very cool, very cool experience. Yeah, I like that idea. A yeah, lot. me too. I tried to replicate that with the band where I would do things like I would be hiding in the audience for like an hour. Uh, <laughs> yes. D- dressed up in costume and then the band would start to play and then I would start singing in the middle of the audience. And my hope was that like one person would see me an hour beforehand and be like, what the hell's up with that guy? And then be like, whoa, the show's been going on this whole time. Right. It definitely happened at least once. Uh, uh, on a sort of related to topic to stevie your little interesting room jim am i remembering correctly that you once had an idea to sneak puzzles into an escape room was that <laughs> was that you oh um, <laughs> uh, you're gonna have to be more specific are we gonna have uh, to edit this out <laughs> <laughs> well I, I i know somewhere i have a friend and i think it is you but i can't remember who had an idea of sneaking irrelevant puzzles like just dropping irrelevant puzzles in escape rooms. Like you'd have like a little chessboard that if you worked it correctly, the bottom would pop open and there would be a key. And while you were in escape room, you just leave it there and hope that the people that like ran the escape room didn't find it. <laughs> I mean, this is the sort of th- like this, this sounds like an idea that I would have, but I don't think it is. I think this oh. is someone else's. That's very good though. I love that idea. I wish I had that idea. <laughs> Well, so you just have one one member of the escape room team man. solving this puzzle that doesn't that doesn't do anything, right, dude? What it would I think the real key here is how do we make how do we force the employees of escape room into having to escape the escape room? Can we like build some kind of meta escape room? I figure that must the, be like training, right? The if stakes you're gonna work are even in an escape room. You know what? This is you know what we should just pitch this to Netflix. I'm sure this will get. This will get a, this will get funded. <laughs> There's got to be a horror movie called Escape Room already. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, that's all the time we have for Topic Lords. Avery, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? Find me on Bandcamp at, I think, Avery Burke. Or someday find me on Spotify. Or I am one of the Avery Burks on Facebook, though I think I check my Facebook once every six months. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Did you check it for friend requests from Topic Lords listeners in the past six months? <laughs> I have not. But odds are if you get an immediate response to your Facebook message, then you've found the wrong Avery Burke. Oh, no. Dude, Avery is just the ultimate unrequited high five when it comes to social media. <laughs> uh, and and Stevie, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? <laughs> oh, no, I'm not falling for that one again. all right uh thanks so much for being on thank you for hosting jim yeah thank you jim hi this is jim this is the audio i append to every episode of topic lords congratulations to our newly anointed lords this episode was edited by esper quinn who can also edit your episode if you contact them on twitter if you'd like more people to hear the show you can tell your friends about it or rate and review us on whatever podcast service you use You can add content to the Topic Bucket by emailing topicbucket at topiclords.com. And you can contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com slash topiclords. Patrons get episodes a week early, and you get access to the Topic Lords Discord, where you can discuss topics with all the lords that hang out in there. See you next episode.